Okay, well, welcome everybody to today's uh, session on risk and reserves. How much is the right amount of risks for you to have for your agency? This is a critically important question when we're dealing in an environment that's rapidly changing and there's a need to figure out uh, what are the true reserves. Some of the old uh, rules of thumb don't really apply anymore because of the circumstances that have changed so dramatically. So we're going to be taking a look at this. This is the 21st year of the coaching program as a member benefit. Uh, for CSMFO, uh, directed by the uh, Career Development Committee, led by Laura Nomura and a band of 12 uh, eager and active volunteers that help identify topics like this and wonderful presenters like we have today uh, for your benefit. Uh, we're going to be talking about, uh, you know, what risks should you consider, how to create a framework for thinking about risk in your organization, and how to communicate that effectively with your decision makers and with the public uh, to be effective in uh, helping your agency navigate these uncertain times. We're delighted to have, and you'll be hearing first, uh, from Dan Matusowicz, who's the Finance Director and Treasurer in Newport Beach. Dan has a great career of uh, more than 25 years in municipal finance and accounting. He started his career in public accounting before accepting his position at the city of Newport Beach, and he oversees uh, $250 million in annual budget and a $200 million investment portfolio, and uh, has an MBA from Santa Clara University, and we've been delighted to have him as a presenter uh, for CSMFO on these webinars and other uh, opportunities uh, elsewhere. So thanks so much, Dan, for being with us today. Then we're going to be hearing from Shane Kavanaugh, who is the senior manager for research at GFOA. He's coming to us from Chicago, um, and he has uh, been actively working with lots of agencies all over the country on a whole series of financial planning uh, topics on reserves issues, and he's going to be sharing with you how he worked with the city of Newport and with the new model that uh, GFOA has put forward uh, to help local government agencies uh, figure out how to make a more risk-adjusted uh, assessment of their reserves and to put those into place. And so he is an MPA from Northern Illinois University and a lot of experience as an expert in this field. We're delighted that you've joined us, uh, Shay. Uh, and then we'll be going to uh, Brian um, Centerior and, and Brian is the fiscal manager in the Riverside Public Utilities. He has over 22 years of experience in municipal finance and accounting, um, and he's worked in a number of different municipalities, and he handles the public utilities area for um, Riverside. And that's an important one because many of you are coming in as special districts and wondering, well, how does this apply if you have a special situation and you're not looking at the whole budget? And so this approach today is going to be very applicable to all of you that have uh, uh, entered, including those of you with library districts, et cetera, because it's going to help you figure out how you do develop a specific risk-focused uh, approach that's relevant to your particular circumstance. So thank you all for uh, coming forward with us. And I'm Don Maruska. I'm the director of the CSMFO coaching program and producer and moderator of these uh, webinars. So pleased to have you. We're going to go to a polling question. We're, we'll have uh, six of these in the course of the day. We always like to see how many people are in our audience in total. So we're uh, going to have this open for one minute uh, for you to respond. We do encourage people to participate in groups because one of the great things when you're in a group is that you can be quickly uh, helping to um, implement the ideas out of this session if two or more of you have heard, learned from it and have the opportunity to uh, share what you've uh, learned uh, in the session and to move forward effectively. So 
let's see how that's working out. And again, I want to highlight for people who are querying uh, that if you're interested in the handout materials, you can click on handout on the GoToWebinar panel. Uh, it's also available 24 hours in advance on the website, and we'll be featuring that location again uh, at the end of this webinar. So we'll just give a moment more here for people to respond. Okay, let's take a look at how we did here with our audience. So 80% um, of you are there on your own, another 19 or so in small groups and some in somewhat larger groups. Uh, that's great, and uh, one of the things that we do, of course, with these webinars is digitally record them. Uh, so there'll be an opportunity for you to um, share this with other people in your organization as you go forward. And I do want to encourage you uh, to enter questions using the polling function as, as we go forward uh, so that you can be um, uh, uh, providing input to us as we go. I just want to get the um, controls over here to Dan. Dan, you're in control here for the, for the um, slides. And Dan Matusiewicz from the city of Newport Beach, and uh, Shane uh, Kavanaugh from GFOA. We're pleased to have you uh, present. All right, well, thank you, Don, and thank you for everyone uh, who's participating on the call today. Uh, we all know that reserves are an important uh, cornerstone to financial flexibility. It's our rainy day fund, if you will. Um, and at some point in your career, you either have already or you will be challenged by uh, your council, your board, um, or your finance committee on the level uh, uh, of your reserve targets. And the problem is there isn't much guidance for us to point to. GIF waypoints to certain minimums. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, rating agencies say you can't have enough. Um, you know, they tend to generally recommend more is better. Um, that, that isn't uh, practical because there's a cost on sitting on too much idle cash. And uh, there's some headline risk uh, for us to be sitting on taxpayer money. Um, so, uh, you know, what we're trying to answer today is how much is the right, how do you determine the right amount for your agency? Um, <clears throat> what do most of us do? Um, we either, um, we either go with our gut instincts. Uh, we're always asked to survey other cities. Um, and ironically, rating agencies also compare us to, to each other relative to other similar credits. Um, uh, you know, whether you're AAA or AA, they're going to say, well, this is what a typical AA or AAA city has in cash. But if we're all looking at each other, you know, how do we know that the other city got it right? And how, you know, uh, so what's the right amount for, for our agency? And that's the, the main thing we're trying to, to, to answer today. Um, and Don, I did try to advance the slide. Let me see here. I've, um, yeah, let me help out here. It should be working. If you get your uh, cursor on that forward arrow, I'll, I moved it for you there. Perfect. You're on the next slide here. Great, got too many cursors going. Okay, so um, the re recurring themes um, are, are 
that uh, you know people are notoriously bad at assessing risk, and you're going to hear more about that from from Shane. Um, and the adequacy of your reserves, you know, this is one of GFOA tenants, is, is that it should be based on the government's own specific circumstances. Uh, the other thing Shane will point out is that we, it's impossible to identify all risks. Um, you know, nobody saw uh, the extent and the magnitude of the 2008 recession. So, um, you know, and, and there could, you know, we don't know what the next um, problem will be coming down the road. You know, maybe it'll be uh, that the, the bigger earthquake, or um, or, or something else that uh, nobody's identified yet. So the other thing, uh, um, of course, you could say you could uh, pinpoint a specific reserve number, but we also have to consider the credit rating uh, viewpoint, and we know that um, that uh, reserves uh, are. Um, are, you know, provide a lot of financial flexibility to us. Um, and the last thing, I think recurring thing that you'll hear is that uh, consider letting your governing bodies participate in the, the agency's appetite uh, or for risk or their, their tolerance for risk. So, um, you know, we can make, an argument many different ways why um, an agency, you know, it's, it's comparing ourselves to other agencies aren't, uh, you know, is, isn't always um, fruitful. Um, either their revenues are very, are very different. If, you know, if you're a sales tax dependent city, your revenue volatility is going to be much uh, greater than a, um, than, than a property tax city. Uh, but, uh, in our case, you know, topography is, is, is an issue. We, we, have, um, <clears throat> we, we have one of the largest recreational harbors um, in, in the U.S. Um, we have eight individual islands that are subject to flooding and seawalls. Uh, we have some areas that are, are um, uh, hard to get to because they're in a canyon and they include a lot of brush. So, um, our risks might be very different than another city. Um, and, um, okay. So, um, coming along with, um, so, you know, our, our population is about 87,000 uh, uh, permanent population, but we have a, uh, roughly um, 100,000 people a day, uh, any one day, come to the city and and uh, that comes with its own set of, of, of problems um, and Don can you help me advance the slide here again thank you and so as you can see the the large number of tourists um, lead to numerous state life safety rescues uh, next slide please um, and of course, uh, you know, especially the uh, July 4th holidays, it leads to a lot of uh, revelry, which increases police enforcement activities. Next slide, please. Um, so, so those were some of the risks uh, or some of the things that make us different from other, other cities. Um, <clears throat> but the risks that we studied in particular for us um, are were, were earthquake risk, floods, 
fire and high winds. So next slide, please. Uh, earthquake risk in Southern California. I think uh, if you look at the number of, of fault lines, um, you know, we're, we're all uh, likely uh, have some level of risk. We happen to be at the end of the Newport In Inglewood fault uh, just offshore. Um, next slide, please. And, you know, we do have brush areas, but our brush areas are, are you know, we, we don't have the hundreds of thousands of acres like they do in, in, in uh, Northern California. So our brush will likely uh, burn up uh, pretty quickly, which will lead to structure uh, defense, the brush fires, uh, you know, but needless to say, we do need to uh, be prepared to, to protect uh, life safety, uh, life safety, and and uh, residential property. So uh, we we still have to be cognizant of those that, that risk. Uh, next slide. Um, I mentioned um, the number of islands and and coastal frontage. A lot of expensive homes lining the both the interior uh, part of the harbor as well as the ocean front and the islands and this blue area is a FEMA map that shows all these areas are susceptible to flooding. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and as you could see, we could either have um, storms that actually breach the seawall, or we could have high rain events um, and a high tide where we're having to, can't, can't have the tide gates open, so we have to pump the water over the wall. Um, so it's a slightly a different risk. Um, we leads to you know property damage as well as um, a reduction to tourism and income income producing properties like this parking lot you see on the right hand side. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, wind damage is pretty obvious. Trees go down. In this case, uh, nobody was hurt, but we've you know we've had uh, uh, fatalities here. Heavy rain combined with wind, uh, some of the trees end up uh, toppling. Next slide. In this case, uh, this homeowner wasn't as lucky. There's uh, some property damage, uh, but uh, nobody was hurt here. Next slide. And then, uh, of course, if you're uh, a, a, a coastal beach city, um, big storms tend to lead to, to large cleanup efforts. Next slide. So, as I mentioned, you know, the primary risk factors, uh, which we just looked at, but then there's, you know, rev revenue volatility due to the downturn, downturn in, in an economy. And then the secondary factors, uh, that uh, lagging increase to pension costs as a result of underperforming assets or other expenses that, that tend to, to spike as a result of uh, a downturn in the economy or of these other ones. So, you know, the GFOA best practice um, is one thing that we, um, you know, will look to, uh, we'll look at rating agencies, and these are kind of our two guardrails. Uh, I think it's obligatory, no matter how you make your argument, you still have to do the comparisons to your benchmark cities. Um, we'll look at historical trends. Your cash flows are important. So that's, um, and then most of us often uh, rely on some amount of gut instinct as well. Next slide. So I think I've made this point abundantly clear that not it's not always fruitful to compare ourselves to our neighbors. 
and there isn't a whole lot of uh, guidance, probably intentionally is vague because all of our risks are different. And that's why we embarked on a project um, with GFWA. Next slide, please. Um, <clears throat> to help us assess our and understand our risks. Uh, so, you know, we identify our primary and secondary risk factors um, and then really start pro uh, providing some quantitative analysis to it and understanding um, um, probabilistic thinking um, as well as understanding, uh, you know, probabilities aren't additive and what, you know, what are those, you know, perceived risks. Uh, we built a model to, to run simulations, um, and then you know we measure those p potential outcomes, and that's where Shane came in because it took a lot of firepower. And it, unless you're a data scientist, um, it, it takes 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 a bit of work to make sure um, you're doing this right. Next slide, please. Okay, we're going to go to a polling question because one of the things we want to uh, dial in on is where our audience is with regard to. Uh, these issues, um, and so we invite you to um, respond to this polling question and uh, give a read on what your approach is and where you stand currently. Uh, I'm noting a comment from uh, some people, if, if you're encountering any sound issues, as we indicate in the emails, uh, use the audio option of phone connection. Uh, sometimes uh, the connection that comes in uh, via the internet, the voice over internet protocol uh, with your computer speakers uh, can be subject to variations in the internet, etc. And if you want the very best sound quality, we encourage you to dial in uh, with the audio uh, number at the phone line uh, to connect uh, for the sound part while you have the computer for the video part. So I invite you to do that. And we'll give another couple seconds here for people to respond to this uh, polling question. And let's see where our audience is on their activity with regard to reserves and what's in store for them. Uh, so we can see uh, from this that um, some people don't have a specific reserve set of guidelines. So this is a great webinar for you. You've got reserve guidelines, but they um, aren't. Uh, really being put into practice and people are in other places. So we can see that uh, this is a great opportunity for you to learn about this and, and we're delighted that uh, Shane Kavanaugh from GFOA is going to carry on our conversation here. And uh, Shane, I'm going to switch over the um, uh, keyboard and mouse controls to you to see if that works a little bit better, uh, but I'm always here to back you up. So right. let's see how this works. Just move I'm your first Don. row that uh, arrow and then I think I go. Did that. So, all right, cool. Don, thank you very much. And thank you to the CSMVO for having me here and the folks on the line for joining us today. So I'm going to be talking a little bit about um, the first point, which is about risk and probability. So Dan had mentioned that to have a optimal reserve target, you need to think of your risk. and uh, uh, Dan also mentioned that uh, thinking probabilistically is part of the project that we did with Newport Beach, so I'm going to be introducing those two topics. So uh, the first point here is that a reserve is a hedge against risk. So the idea being that we struggle with the question, how much reserve is enough? And when you're thinking about that question, you're really talking about balancing spending money on current services 
again, preparing for risk because we put money aside in a reserve, it is necessarily not available for spending on current services. So um, if we're going to talk about risk, it's probably good to start with the definition of it. So this is a definition that I like, where the probability and magnitude of a loss, disaster, or other undesirable event is risk. So the idea of the magnitude of loss is that something we all, I think, get, but the idea of a probability is not something that is widely as widely discussed in public finance. So we're going to be seeing these two concepts together in the rest of this presentation constituting how we define risk. And one might ask, well, you know, why do we need probabilities? Public science has gotten along without them up to this point. Um, why why these, are these things potentially useful? So I'm not going to read this uh, off to you, but you can take that in there for a minute. And really kind of the point being, and I think Dan mentioned this in his presentation, is that if we don't use probabilities to define risks, we're left with gut decision-making, and gut decision-making potentially not a good way to go. So in my next slide here, I'm going to illustrate why that is the case. So why not go with the gut? Well, there's a pretty good little experiment called probability guessing, and how this experiment works is the participant in this game, this experimental game, is presented with a series of red and green lights that are randomly generated, and the participant's role in this game is to guess the next color of the light that is going to be shown, or in this case, a little dot. So I've got this randomly generated string of green and red dots, and they're randomly generated according to an algorithm. And your job is to guess the next color of light that or dot that I'm going to show you. So let's go do that. So there's one. And I'll just show you the rest of the string in each of the time. So that's the whole string. So how did you do? We aren't. We don't have a polling question on that. But we don't need to embarrass anybody. But the idea being that um, if you're like most people, you didn't do fantastically. And in fact, um, we do play this game in real life with people um, versus lab rats, where the lab rats are playing for little food pellets, so they have to like hit the little bar for a food pellet to get red or green. And it turns out that when you play this game versus people, the rats win. And why do the rats win? Well, it's because the rats see green most of the time, and this algorithm is randomly generating red or green dots or lights according to an algorithm that says 75% chance green, 25% chance red. So the rats see mostly green, they just hit green all the time, and they're right 75% of the time. People see these little dots and patterns, and they start to think there's patterns, and there's really not. So they'll just say, well, you know, I think we're due for a red, so I'm going to guess red. Um, now, if you know anything about the gambler's fallacy and, like, say, slot machines and things like that, it doesn't work that way. Um, every time you're getting a new dot, it's still 75% chance of it being green, no matter how many green dots there were before that. So people tend to get 60% of the dots right, so which is obviously worse than 75% of the rats. So um, some other reasons that people are... That is, there's some of the reasons people are not great at uh, judging risk their gut is a series of decision-making biases uh, called cognitive biases. It's been uh, discovered in recent years by um, behavioral psychologists. In fact, there's been a few Nobel Prize, prizes won for this sort of work. So some of the sort of biases that we need to be aware of are one is the overconfidence bias. So the idea here is that we're overconfident in our predictions and overconfident in our ability to judge what the future will be like. And so research shows that we actually underestimate uncertainty by around 50%. So if you ask people to judge 
um, a range of uncertain information. They'll usually have a range that's too narrow by 50%. Just a quick example, uh, we were working with one local government uh, who was at risk for wildfires. We asked the local fire protection staff to estimate the range of potential damages, and we then compared that to data we had gathered in the region um, that this was relevant for this particular agency, and we found that the um, range produced by the fire protection staff was, as the research suggested, 50% narrower than the range suggested by the data. And this actually can be useful because if you don't have a lot of data available, but you do have staff estimates, you know that if you have those, take those estimates and double them, um, because they're likely 50% too narrow, you will actually get pretty close to what the data would probably reveal if you had it. Um, the next bias is availability bias. So this means that details are more easily recalled or overweighted um, when assessing risk. So flood insurance being the classic example there. Flood happens, a bunch of people run out and buy flood insurance because the flood just happened. Uh, three years later, if there's been no flood, a lot of people let their flood insurance last, even though the risk of flood is still exactly the same as when they bought the flood insurance. It's kind of an out of sight, out of mind problem here. And then lastly is confirmation bias. So this is the idea that random patterns will take as evidence if they match an expectation and just to use our probability guessing example from the prior slide. Let's say that you said, well, you know, I think we're due for a red, and it happened to be red. You'd be like, well, I was right. Uh, you know, we were due for a red. And you would probably then carry that through to your future predictions. And the same thing could happen with like revenue predictions if you're trying to predict revenue patterns or forecasts. So there's the site of bias. All these biases can be uh, very, make it very difficult to judge risk accurately. And then one final um, little pitfall when it comes to judging risk is called the FLOM averages. So a lot of times in public science, we condense down a range of data into a convenient single number known as an average. Um, but the problem with an average is it obscures variation. So there is a um, old statistics jokes that in a room full of 10 people, on, uh, where one of those people is Bill Gates or maybe updated for 2019, Jeff Bezos, um, on average, everyone in that room is a millionaire. And yes, it is true, if you took the wealth of everybody in that room, added it up, and divide by 10, you would get a number over $1 million, but it is not an accurate description of the actual wealth of people in that room. And this is important for the work we're talking about, because of, for example, if we were to talk about the average earthquake damage, that would be a pretty um, unhelpful concept, because there are many little tremors that we hardly even feel. So when we're talking about risk in the concept or in the context of reserves, we're talking about much larger earthquakes. So chatting about or talking about the average earthquake is not helpful when we're really interested in the above average earthquake. So um, what might the answer to this be? So um, the answer is probabilistic thinking, and it's useful to think of probabilities in terms of pictures. And uh, one picture is this, um, that to help um, orient you guys, this idea is called the normal distribution, otherwise known as the bell curve. If you're not familiar with it, a good way to kind of get familiar with it is thinking about the height of American men, which are normally distributed. So how this works is you've got the average American male is 5'9". They're at the top of this curve because that is the most frequently, the most frequently occurring height, but it's right in the middle. You've also got the gentleman from the Game of Thrones. He's a little shorter, so he is at the other end. And then you've got the um, newest tall resident of California over on the other side um, who comes in at 6'10", so there's not so many people of his height. So 
is on the other end of the curve. So in other words, the higher the point on the curve, the more frequently that particular type occurs. So now how might this be useful in public finance? So um, here's normal distribution, and here is how this might work for, say, rainfall. So most of the time, you've got an average amount of rainfall, but once in a while, you get a lot of rainfall, and that's maybe where the flood comes in, or maybe you've got on the other side of the curve, um, very little rainfall, and that's when you get a drought. So this might be important if you're a water agency, or it might be important if you're a general purpose government where flooding is a concern. So many different applications. And kind of the other point on the slide is that these tails, this is the end of the curve, is where the risks are at. So the kind of when we're talking about average rainfall, not such a big deal. If we're talking about the tails or the end of the distribution, that's where the risk is. So we want to think about tail risk. This is earthquakes, so not all distributions are necessarily symmetrical or normal. Earthquakes are asymmetrical, where you've got, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of little tremors. Um, but then you've got earthquakes, and the big ones are less frequent but more severe, so we'd be more concerned about those. And some of the implications there is reserves are more useful for kind of your earthquakes that are over to the left side of this. But as you move to the right, you maybe it's not possible to accumulate enough reserves to cover all the potential losses or damage. So you might need to think about debt and insurance and how, or borrowing and insurance and how that could complement your reserve strategy. So don't look at reserves as your only way to deal with risk, but how can these other instruments be potentially helpful? And what we've got on this slide is just a little example of how this can be useful. And this is uh, from somewhere, not California, because we're talking about average snowfall. Um, but if you get how this works, you've got right in the middle for this particular jurisdiction, average snowfall for the year is 54 inches. In this particular county government, they've budgeted um, an amount each year sufficient to remove snow um, where that little green box and arrow is. Now, they've just arrived at that over time because they realized if we average, if we budgeted snow, uh, sufficient to remove 54 inches, we'd be over budget about half of the time and under budget about half the time. In other words, a coin flips chance of having a deficit. So they've just intuited that they should budget a little more than the average. But that means that there's still all that area to the right of the little green box in the arrow that they're not covering in their budget and natural reserves come in. So they need to think about what level of risk are they willing to take on. So for example, if they had uh, had financial resources necessary to or sufficient to cover 84 inches, they would be covered 95% of the snow seasons because that's what our statistics show us. If they said, well, you know, 95, we don't want to have that much money around, and that seems like a only 5% chance that we would not have enough money, we're willing to take on more risk. If we went with uh, enough money to cover 78 inches or remove 78 inches per year, uh, we'd be good 90% of the time. And so you can kind of see how this could start to be useful and start to quantify the risk that the local government is subject to in a California context, and in fact, in Newport Beach context, um, we did something very similar to this for high wind risk that Dan mentioned, where every year Newport Beach budgets something for the removal of debris, but the amount of wind and the amount of debris that's going to be knocked over is an uncertain number. So the Newport Beach has to think about uh, how much it will have in reserve to cover years where there's an extraordinarily large amount of debris removal that goes beyond what their budget is able to handle. You can also change um, the distribution to a different type of chart. So this is a completely different type of chart than we're just looking at. This is the cumulative probability chart. 
and this is actually for a California coastal city, and this is for floods. And so by looking at a bunch of flood data, we're able to develop a curve that shows us the relative chance that a given amount of money will be sufficient to cover the damage from a particular flood. So the I think very the interesting thing about this chart is that it starts to go very sharply upwards to the right, which is a very common phenomenon. So in other words, as we go further to the right, they can get more and more confident that a given amount of money will cover a given flood. So for example, if we are right here at this point in the chart, you can see $200,000 gives about 80% confidence. If they want to go to 90% confidence, they need about $500,000. However, if they want to go to 95% confidence, they need to go closer to $1.2 million because you get further and further to the right, you're talking about more and more extreme types of floods. So it kind of makes the point that reserves are an efficient response to risk up to a certain point. But then when you're trying to cover the most extreme sorts of risks, you have to put more and more aside to gain less and less potential certainty. And maybe that's where insurance or other instruments uh, to deal with risk might be more helpful as you get further to the right on a chart like this. Moving on. Um, also, another key point here that you, we learned this analysis is that risks aren't additive. So, um, what we see on this chart is that uh, we've got a local government that's subject to hazardous material and wildfire risk. If you add those two up, um, you get 3.1 plus 2.5 is 5.6. However, um, when we think of these two risks together, it doesn't actually work like that. You have to think about, well, what's the chance of having a really bad hazardous material spill? and a really bad wildfire at the same time, actually pretty low. So if you think about it that way, the you can be 90% confident of covering the damage from a hazardous material spill and a wildfire um, with only $4.7 million. If you think of them individually, you need these amounts, but if you roll them together, um, it's actually less. It's actually, this is the power of diversification, like in investments, it's sort of like the reverse of that. If you're thinking in your, if your risk, if you think of all your risks together, the experience of having a really bad thing happen across all your different risk factors is actually relatively low. So it actually then kind of gives you uh, a more diversified portfolio, if you will. All right, moving on to the next slide. And then lastly, um, as far as our, our review of uh, probability concepts is the time horizon. So you can use the type of analysis to think about a longer term time horizon. So this is from a local government where we calculate the chance of various extreme events happening in different time horizons. So if we only looked one year ahead, there is an 82% chance of zero extreme events happening. That's actually a pretty good chance. If we looked at five years, there is only a 37% chance of zero extreme events happening. So the point being is that doing this analysis and looking out over a longer time horizon will be more instructive as to the actual amount of risk you face. If you look at a very short time horizon, you may come away with the um, impression that you have a very low chance of anything happening, but since reserves need to last for many years, it's better to look at a longer-term time horizon, and we'll show that here in just a second. So now we're going to get into the method. So with that background in mind, how does one actually go about analyzing risk? So the key to our approach is something called the AAA approach, and you have to, number one, accept that uncertainty is inevitable. As I mentioned earlier, people tend to underestimate uncertainty because of that overconfidence bias. You need to find the potential impact of the risk you're facing using reference cases. So historical data from your own jurisdiction, so what sort of 
um, disasters have you experienced in the past and what was the impact? Or analogs, um, maybe both. Analogs are other places that maybe have experienced similar things. So what have other localities experienced when they have had an earthquake happen or a flood? What have been the damages? That sort of information can be useful for suggesting what sort of damages you might encounter in your own locality. And finally is augment. So uncertainty will usually be underestimated. So if just for example, if we look at only the floods that had happened in our jurisdiction, that doesn't mean that we've experienced all the worst floods that could possibly happen. It could get certainly worse than has happened in your own past history. So you have to be ready to look beyond that and prepare for worse than what has actually happened. And we'll get into that here in a minute, how to do that. And one point I'll make um, with the resources is when we are getting into and developing this probabilistic analysis, we use this open source standard called probability management. It works in Microsoft Excel. So if you've got Excel, um, you could start using this technology this afternoon if you're so inclined. One of the reasons GFA likes it, and we use this technology to do something called Monte Carlo analysis, which is, if you're wondering what's that, um, Monte Carlo analysis is essentially a computerized simulation method where you're developing thousands of different versions of the futures and then seeing what sort of scenarios unfold over these different versions of the future. So if we've got, say, a thousand scenarios and we find out that we have a flood um, that causes damage greater than $10 million in 100 of those scenarios, we know that there is a 10% chance of experiencing a flood of that size. So by developing these thousands of scenarios, you can look across to find out how frequently given events occur. So I'm going to show you here an example of how we assess sales tax risk in Newport Beach. So this is, uh, we started in Newport Beach by breaking down their revenues into different categories. Um, so I think this is very similar categories that other California localities have. So we found out that Newport Beach, that uh, back in the Great Recession, 2008-2009, um, autos and transportation took the biggest, a big hit, as did general consumer goods. However, when we look forward to closer to today, uh, we see that general consumer goods are actually now a less important revenue source than restaurants and hotels that didn't really take much of a dip at all during the Great Recession. But on the other hand, autos and transportation have climbed back up to be very important. So this tells us that, well, if we're thinking about Newport Beach's vulnerability to a recession today, um, they've still got vulnerability in the autos and transportation sector. However, their general consumer goods um, risk is probably not as great as it used to be because back in 2007, it was almost as important as autos and transportation and took a gigantic dip downwards. Nowadays, it's less important than restaurants and hotels, which didn't experience much of a dip at all. Uh, during the Great Recession. So that's a source of strength or resilience against a future downturn. So kind of zooming out to a bigger picture when we kind of look at all the monthly revenues in Newport Beach, um, that's a little red dot or red line is month to month revenues. It's very, looks very volatile. Um, however, when you kind of do average smooth that out using something called a 12 month moving average, we can see that um, Newport Beach in the 2001 um, recession, which is the first little green circle, and the 2007 Great Recession was the second green circle. Um, actually, the re revenues didn't really take that big of a hit in Newport Beach compared to other places. So what this tells us is that Newport Beach is relatively resilient against recessions, and that probably goes to some of the things Dan was talking about as far as being a really attractive place for people to be and tourists to visit. 
So that kind of tells us that Newport Beach's recession risk is probably really not that high compared to maybe other localities. That's informative for when we're building our risk model. And lastly, the augment. This is um, the um, how we took all that information from Newport Beach's uh, historical data and put it into a probabilistic curve. So what this shows us is that Newport Beach has a small chance of a recession if one happens, about 10% of not really having much damage at all. I meant just a speed bump for Newport Beach if it's a very small recession. Um, if they had a reserve equal to about 12% of their revenue, that would give them 90% confidence of being able to get through a recession. But we have to augment our risk. So the Great Recession is not the worst possible scenario. So by looking at some of the most the worst months that happened during the Great Recession and using those as a reference case, we'd say, well, if we had a lot of those really bad months, more so than occurred during even the Great Recession, what might that look like? And that's what this end of the uh, graph here is that's telling us, well, in like a really bad case, you know, Newport Beach might even need up to, you know, 15 or 20% reserve to survive a uh, really bad recession. Okay, we're going to go to a polling question here uh, because we're interested in um, seeing what our audience uh, thinks about uh, these the AAA approach here and where it would particularly like to give attention uh, for that item. So uh, take a moment to respond to that. Uh, we do have a question in here, and that's people asking uh, some sources for the databases uh, that might be used. And this particular question is about is there a public database uh, or data collected for the costs incurred in the more recent wildfires in California? If so, uh, where is that link? Anybody have some information about that question? Uh, yeah, sure. FEMA records all that stuff. So we go to FEMA databases, and uh, they have all sorts of information about floods, earthquakes, um, wildfires. Now, of course, the downside is that it's only FEMA uh, presidentially declared disasters in there. So if you're not uh, if this is not a presidentially declared disaster, it won't be in the FEMA database, but that is a very good place to start. Okay, great. So we're going to give a couple seconds more for people to respond to this uh, question. And then I just make a note, uh, Shane, that uh, we're running a bit behind here. So if you might uh, move through the model piece of it fairly sure. quickly, I think people would be especially interested in what Newport Beach did with the results and, and how that played out. And we'll get to some questions about the model later if we have time. Yeah, perfect. So let's take a look. Uh, we see that people, the big uh, focal point here is on assessing, uh, figuring out how to work through these things. So we're going to get to that in a, in a moment when we hear how um, Newport Beach addressed this and, and the Riverside as well. So let's get back to the uh, core presentation here. All right, talk real quick. We're just going to show a bit of the model. This is the model that we built for Newport Beach. We're just going to focus on the left-hand side of it, so this is the full thing, but we're just going to zoom in on the left-hand side. And essentially what this is showing is the little, I'm going to focus on the little yellow bars in the interest of time. Um, little yellow bars show us the chance the reserve of Newport reaches or goes below the critical threshold. The critical threshold means that Newport Beach would be very unhappy if the reserves went to zero. Um, so the critical threshold is what is the minimum dollar amount they would like to have in there at all times, and you can define that as user, but for this point, we defined it at 17 million, and we also, as part of this model, define that Newport Beach is going to cut, and that's a little red circle, 2% of their budget if a bad thing happens. So they're not going to just dip into reserve immediately. They're going to first um, think about cutting their budget. So go to the next slide. 
And we should go back here and just show you what the important part is. So that puts them in about after a 10-year period. That means every 10 years, they probably have about a 12% chance of going below their critical threshold if they're going to cut 2%. They said, well, you know, we have a little more flexibility than that. We're willing to cut 5%. Um, the model conducts Monte Carlo analysis, does a thousand scenarios, and finds out that, well, looking across those thousand scenarios, it turns out there is now only a 3% chance of Newport Beach exceeding its critical threshold because they're willing to cut a bigger part of their budget. So this is just an example of the sort of things you can, variables you can play around with this model and uh, kind of see how different types of decision parameters would impact your susceptibility to risk. And then just the interest of time will, um, I think, skip past that one and go to the results. Okay, let me just mention here that uh, uh, if you do wish to access the uh, this model, the example with uh, Newport Beach, probably the best thing to do is to just ping um, uh, Shane uh, or Dan, and uh, they can uh, send you the Excel spreadsheet, and you can take a look at how that works, but you'll see that at the end. So, uh, Dan, we're, we're turning back to you. Uh, we'll try how uh, the controls work over this way again, but uh, I'll, I'll follow you along the way, and we'll get to uh, get through the results here, which are what everyone would love to see. Okay, so I, I essentially advanced to the, to the next slide to ultimately the, the results. And, you know, typically when you, if, if you were looking at this as a yield curve, you'd, you'd want to buy investments at the steepest part of the curve. Um, on the, uh, you know, on, on our side, uh, we're looking to get uh, the highest probability with the least amount of cash. And so that sweet spot that GFOA identified is that uh, yellow square box to say, uh, you know, before things get kind of out of control and, you know, you need to put, uh, you know, in excess of $50 million out there to, to get, a, you know, 100% um, somewhat bulletproof, um, that sweet spot is, is, is that kind of yellow box. Um, but there were some other considerations there too. Um, I think there was a polling question that came in um, uh, uh, about, uh, you know, pensions. It's um, and you know that secondary impact. Um, so we did make some adjustments there, and Shane and I had a little bit of an intellectual debate about uh, uh, about that issue. Um, but GFOA's analysis found that our reserve level, at least to cover cer the certain known risks that we identified, the earthquake, the wind, um, and, and, and fire and flood, um, it was less than the city's uh, current policy, which was 25% of the operating budget. Um, so that gave us some pretty good comfort that, okay, we're, we're you know, at minimum, we're covering the minimum level of risk. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we did, um, uh, want to start, um, you know, we acknowledge that we can't foresee all future risks. So then, you know, the question was, how do we hedge against that? Um, let's see here. So, and, and we did, you know, did the obligatory survey that, um, put, you know, we, we saw a lot of people in the 15% range, and uh, we saw most of the results um, be, between 20 to 25% for those similar AAA cities. Uh, but again, that, that uh, analysis that it's not inclusive of every risk uh, 
you know, what, what should we do? Um, and I'm losing the arrow box again here, Don. So uh, perhaps I just can't see it. Thank you. So um, <clears throat> as somebody mentioned, you know, well, what, what about pensions here in California? The investment losses, you know, we're, we're leveraged uh, so much uh, or highly leveraged against our, our, our pension. Um, um, a potential uh, pe uh, pension liability and investment losses related to those assets that fund pensions. Um, what should we do? And so we we actually ran a number of simulations on investment losses. Um, and you know what Shane what what it started to kind of show is that. You have a lot of time to prepare between that invest when that investment loss occurs and when it actually hits your your budget and and, and the light bulb went on for me uh, and we discussed is this really a reserve issue or 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 something that just needs to be on your your budget radar um since you've got from point of incident you have two years before you see it in your valuation and then that's ramped in over five years. So you have another, you know, almost seven years before it peaked for that investment loss. And thought, well, maybe, maybe reserves aren't, you know, that's where Shane and I kind of went back and forth. Is this a reserve issue or is it really a budgetary issue? Um, and ultimately we decided to keep a little extra dry powder um, because that while PERS does, um, um smooth in those rates over a five-year period and you have two years to prepare for that it's accruing seven percent interest all the while so we decided uh to have uh, a little larger reserve level uh to help us hedge against those uh pers costs so that as soon as we know about them um our our pension strategy has been to start paying on them early so we kept a little extra dry powder on top of the minimum risk that we identified so we could start um, paying on those um, during the current budget cycle as soon as the investment loss was, was identified and that would uh, reduce overall interest costs um, in, in the long run. Um, so next slide, please. Um, um, <clears throat> I can take that. Okay. Yeah, um, so that's you. Yeah, so real, take Thank you. Uh, quick takeaways is so, yeah, right amount of reserve depends on your risk. So, there's no one size fits all approach to this. It just depends what your risks are. Um, people are bad at estimating risk, so don't go with your gut. Um, use analog, so historical data or whatever happens to other cities is a great place to start. Um, eight rating agencies, as Dan uh, mentioned, can be important. They consider fund balance to be a strength when we saw that. Um, red line or the critical threshold in the model I showed you, um, or Newport Beach as well, we don't reserve to get below this number. Uh, that number was generated by taking into account rating, rating agency guidelines because they didn't want their bond rating to go down. And then remember the known, unknown, unknowns, which you, we can't think of every possible risk, so you want to leave a margin for it. So that was also part of that critical threshold um, that you saw in the model. And I think... Um, so, so Shane, if I could jump in here just for a second. So we were just 
again, we use the, the, the GFOA analysis as, as kind of those uh, uh, guardrails between the, the minimum and potential maximums. Um, and, um, and, and then, so we did augment our, chose to augment our reserves for those unknown unknowns, as well as um, uh, for, for the potential of additional PERS losses. All right, Don, I think you have to advance the slide. I don't have the control. All right, there you go. And then Don, or Dan, did you want to say a little bit about this? Yeah, so again, about the, uh, having the local agencies, we kind of put it back uh, on our finance committee to say, well, here's kind of, here are the guardrails, the minimum and some of the potentials. Um, but, you know, what is your appetite for risk? Um, both managing the cost, the opportunity cost of keeping a lot of cash um, uh, on hand, earning very little little interest, um, and um, the other side of it is, well, you know, are you willing to take on the headline risk of having, uh, you know, reserving too much uh, taxpayer money, sitting idle, not. body found you know a lot of comfort in us doing that quantitative analysis to establish hey our primary risks uh, we've identified and that's our minimum guideline and uh, that helped answer that that difficult question about well you know why did you pick this arbitrary number we've got uh, quantitative analysis to identify kind of our minimums and then they participated in how much risk did they want to take with cash cash reserves um, and on the on the upper end. Cool. All right. Um, yeah. So next steps. Um, the review your reserve policy. You have one. So if you've got a target amount in there already, um, you could stress test it. So we're doing a project like that right now at the City of Denver, where they've got a policy they like it. They just want to know if it's sufficient. Um, so you could take that approach to it. And also thinking about, does your policy prohibit unsustainable uses of the reserve? So does it prevent or uh, prohibit using it for ongoing expenditures? Pretty key. Uh, but beyond that, so that's kind of your foundation is your policy. What are your most important risks? So you think about any of the things like Dan mentioned. I think we heard on this call a little bit. Um, this was in a Newport Beach risk, but other folks might have cash flow risk, for example. So if your revenue comes in all at one point during the year and you need reserves to cover the gap, um, that could be a risk. So any number of potential things could be a risk for you, but catalog them. Um, find analogs and judge the potential impacts, looking at historical data, looking at what has happened to other communities is a good way to do that. And then lastly, again, augment. Um, so the analogs will probably not represent the worst possible outcome. So take steps to um, go beyond that and think about um, how could we uh, prepare for more risk than our analog might suggest. Okay, so this brings us to a polling question here. You've gotten some good advice and, and suggestions from both Dan and from uh, Shane. So let's take a look at uh, which of these uh, actions you think would be useful for your agency uh, to take. Uh, click off as many of them as you think uh, 
might be relevant for your agency, so we get a read on that. Uh, we always focus on these webinars on translating information into action. So it's one thing to hear all these ideas, it's another to take action and response, and we would like to encourage you in doing that. So while it's happening, uh, Shane and Dan, what's the best way for people to get a copy of the model? Um, when we get to, would one of you like to be the person to be receiving the emails for that, or either of you? We'll have both of your email addresses up at the end of the webinar. Uh, I can just find that. Yeah, and then uh, in addition to the model, um, uh, we also got in the slide deck a couple other things that people might find helpful. Um, so there's a link to a uh, what we call like basic risk analysis spreadsheet where it's more qualitative and not quantitative like Dan and I were showing. So if you're like, you know what, um, too many numbers, um, we've got something for you. It's a qualitative risk analysis tool and that could be potentially useful. Uh, just for getting conversation starts. I know a lot of governments that we've worked with have benefited just from that. Um, so just getting that conversation going. And we also have a link to our Colorado Springs report, um, which is also quantitative, but not as quantitative as the work with Newport Beach. So if you're like, well, you know, I'd like quantitative, but I'd like a little kind of, we'll say like longer runway, um, then maybe the Newport or the uh, Colorado Springs model might be for you. Um, we've, I've known a number of local governments have copied that uh, method and used it on their own successfully. Uh, that one's a few years old at this point, but a potential uh, valuable resource for folks on the call. All right. So we can see that people are looking to take action on many items here. So you've stimulated a lot of uh, interest and discussion around that. Uh, so let me uh, get onto that uh, resource page that you're referencing. And uh, then there's another question for uh, the two of you before we turn to Brian. Was there a comment you wanted to make, Dan? Well, yeah, I, I wanted to make clear, I, I meant to do this in the early part, is this is our general fund reserve for um, conting, con, contingencies, um, you know, contingency and stabilization reserve that does not include any, any uh, uh, funding that we have set aside for either uh, equipment or facility replacement um, and um, funding long-term liabilities. This is this was strictly focused on on the uh, general fund contingency reserve. Okay, yeah, that brings up an interesting question, which is, um, are are you thinking, uh, Shane, of uh, sort of a California version of your model that would include uh, things like, you know, uncertainty about CalPERS uh, investment returns? Because for many local government agencies, that's been swinging their budget in a bigger way than, you know, most any of the naturally occurring, uh, you know, risks and disasters that, that might be happening. There's sort of the investment disaster, if you will. <laughs> um, have you thought about, you know, formally incorporating, a, if you will, a, a California version, which you might have also an Illinois version. There are a number of different, uh, you know, states that have pretty substantial uh, pension obligations uh, hanging out. Uh, any quick thoughts on that? And then we need to move on. Yeah, sure. Um, Newport Beach model does have that in it. Um, so we did look at all the CalPERS return history because that's an analog is that when we talk about historical analog. CalPERS historical returns is a great analog. So we built um, distributions of their uh, returns and use that to uh, link it to our recession model. So the model kind of, if it 
stimulates a recession. It not only brings Newport Beach's revenues down, it puts their uh, CalPERS contributions up. But as Dan mentioned, there's a lag. It's not immediate. There's a two-year lag. So the um, model takes that into account by saying, well, it's not going to do immediately, but a couple of years in the future, you will start to see higher pension costs. And it calculates that in. So it's uh, yeah, very easy to um, bring that in. And okay. yeah, I mean, it's very easy and I did to expand that, that component. And, um, and so maybe that is something that we would want to consider as well. You know, a separate standalone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see that. All right, great. Well, we'll be coming back to some questions at the end here, but we want to turn to uh, Brian Centerior, uh, who is a fiscal manager in Riverside Public Utilities. And Brian, we're so delighted that you're with us. Brian's a CPA. Uh, he works with uh, both the, the electric and the water uh, sides of Riverside, a huge portfolio that he's managing. So a lot of risks, a lot of things he's got to be taking track, keeping track of. Thanks for sharing your insights with us today, Brian. All right, good morning and thank you for having me. Um, as, as Don mentioned, I'm going to share our cash reserve policy development process and our experience here at Riverside Public Utilities. Let's see if I can hit advanced, right? Um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the city of Riverside. We're a full service city and have a population of 325,000 residents. Uh, we're centrally located in Southern California, about one hour north of San Diego, uh, one hour east of Los Angeles, and one hour west of Palm Springs. Uh, nice good picture there of our, our service territory and city. Uh, we are fortunate enough to have a customer-owned electric and water utilities. Uh, together, the electric and water enterprise funds are the public utilities department. Uh, I may refer to the utilities as RPU throughout, throughout the presentation out of habit. Uh, the utilities have served the city of Riverside residents since 1895. There's an old picture of uh, our administrative building from many years ago. Um, we serve 110,000 electric customers and 66,000 water customers. And we have combined annual retail sales uh, from the electric and water of $370 million. That, that doesn't include some of our other revenues, but just to give you an idea of uh, our size. Um, the topics I'll discuss today include our utility 2.0 planning process. So that was our planning process to move forward. Uh, the importance of a reserve policy, our policy development, uh, reserve level calculations at RPU, and then close with a summary. So why did Riverside Public Utilities embark on the process of developing a cash reserve policy? Uh, in 2015, both the City Council and the Board of Public Utilities went through a strategic planning process. For the city as a whole, uh, the City Council adopted Riverside 2.0 strategic plan to implement the City Council's strategic priorities. And then for Riverside Public Utilities, through board workshops, and joint city council and board meetings, uh, RPU developed Utility 2.0, which became the strategic plan for the utility going forward. It includes the strategic goals of Riverside, the overall city, Riverside 2.0, and focused on utility infrastructure improvements, workforce development, and thriving financially over the next 10 years. So this basically re um, 
provided RPU and the city with a roadmap. To achieve the goals of Utility 2.0, we, um, we need to look in the context of financial balance and affordability and balancing the four components as you see here. One of the components is cash reserves. However, in order to look at the reserve levels, we needed to first update our cash reserve policy. Our existing policy at the time had been adopted in 2001, and it was very basic, had a few paragraphs covering less than half of a page with no risk quantification at all, uh, with no clear definition of the types of reserves either. Uh, so the process of updating our reserve policy became our first step. So um, what are some of the long-term benefits uh, reserves provide to ratepayers? Because we're primarily funded by our ratepayers, our, our rates for our electric and, and water services. Uh, they protect against emergencies, um, provide strong credit positive, leading to lower borrowing costs for our customers, mitigate future rate increases due to market disruptions, and help reduce the, the probability of rate shock our customers. We'd like to keep our rates as stable as possible. Uh, these were the goals and objectives for our reserve policy. We wanted to maintain the short and long-term health of RPU, provide rate stability for our customers. We wanted to ensure funding for unanticipated costs. I'll go into those. Uh, we wanted to ensure funding for system improvements and replacement also ensure funds are available to pay our bills timely. Um, so as, uh, as revenue coming in and time to pay our bills. And maintain the strong credit, credit ratings to ensure the lower borrowing costs that I had mentioned. Thank you. Um, having trouble finding the arrow on my screen there, Don. Um, these are our steps in creating the new uh, policy. First, we wanted to understand the best practices for municipal utilities. We reviewed other utility policies. We researched professional organizations, including the GFOA, American Public Power Association, American Water Works Association, and we looked for the recommended best practices to help design our policy. Second, we performed risk assessment and quantification by evaluating the known and unknown risks the best that we could. Third, we created a methodical and rational formulas to size the reserves uh, to appropriate, appropriately cover RPU for those known and unknown risks from a minimum target level and a maximum target level. So that was mentioned a little earlier in the presentation, kind of minimum and maximum. And fourth, we evaluated the results for reasonableness and compared levels to other utilities and rating agency guidelines. Finally, we then documented the, the proposed policy. The most important part of putting together the policy was risk assessment and quantification. Uh, we understood that RPU is very unique and the electric and water utility industries are complex. We face a significant number of environmental, market, and regulatory issues. Uh, we needed to make sure that we identified both risks for foreseen and unforeseen events. And lastly, we needed to make sure that we had the minimum level of reserves to handle both of those risks. Uh, 
here are some of the uh, examples of the risk factors that played a role in designing our reserve policy. To highlight a few, the first is the uh, potential reduction in customer demand. We've seen uh, this recently and the drought uh, um, and how that affected our water utility. We were mandated to reduce our water consumption by 28%, so that significantly impacted our retail sales. Item number four is new regulatory requirements, such as greenhouse gas and renewable energy regulations on the electric side. Um, we've had a significant, these could have a significant impact on costs, and the mandates keep changing with legislation and keep growing. Uh, additional risk factors, the uh, financial market disruption is an example. Uh, such as the one in the early 2000s when insurance companies were downgraded. Agencies had to scramble to restructure their debt. Uh, luckily, Riverside fare, fared well at the time, and uh, but it could have cost the utility millions of dollars to restructure that debt. So to quantify our major risk factors, we worked with various RPU divisions um, throughout the utility. We worked with a power resources group for our power supply. Uh, we looked at potential cost uncertainties and regulatory risks affecting our power supply budget, which is the largest portion of our operating budget on the electric side. We worked with the generation and production division uh, that operate our power plants, substations, wells, reservoirs, and treatment plants. We asked what's the cost to quickly repair and replace these critical assets and what's the cost of replacing damaged equipment due to unforeseen events, uh, such as the earthquakes, fires, and floods. There are two types of reserves, restricted and unrestricted. Uh, the restricted are the reserves that are legally restricted, either by law, contract, or statute. So those were already taken care of. Um, there are also two types of unrestricted reserves. Um, there are designated reserves uh, that the board and city council have set aside for specific purposes, and the undesignated reserves. Uh, these are the remaining reserves, which is what the reserve policy addressed. Um, here's a little more information on the unrestricted um, undesignated reserves. Unrestricted reserves uh, have not been designated for specific capital or operating purposes. Uh, the cash reserve policy addresses the levels, uh, the use of these reserves, and replenishment of the undesignated reserves. Based on the risk assessment that we performed, we recommended a certain level of reserve be maintained to manage the four specific risk areas. First is the uh, working capital or the operating reserve. Uh, second is the rate stabilization, uh, capital improvements uh, reserve, and debt service reserve. The first of the four areas, the operating reserve or the working capital, is uh, here on our slide. For each risk category, we first identified the purpose, uh, why we needed that category the calculation methodology. Uh, here we have a, the minimum calculation example and the rationale for the reserve. Uh, for the methodology, we wanted the calculation to be simple and easy to explain. 
with the ability to point to a published document, such as the audited financial statement or a budget document. So for operating reserve, we have 60 days of operating expenditures is clearly reported in our audited financial statements. The calculations completed annually in conjunction with the year-end financial results. Uh, and the rate stabilization reserve uh, helps buffer RPU against temporary external shocks, such as drought, extreme rainfall that we saw, we saw this year, uh, regulatory changes, market fluctuations, and unforeseen drops in overall demand. Calculation is based on a percentage of operating revenues, and they're different for the electric and water utility. Uh, the capital expenditures reserve uh, was set aside a reserve for emergency situations and also for planned system improvements. So we have the two subcategories here. For emergency, we use the percentage of capital assets. And for system improvements, that's based on the number of months of our uh, capital improvement plan. So six months of the next year's capital improvement plan. Uh, then finally, the debt service reserve. Uh, due to our strong uh, credit ratings at RPU, the electric and water utility, um, there we, go. we do not have to fund our debt service reserves when we issue bonds. Um, but to help ensure that we maintain our high credit ratings and provide additional assur assurance to investors, uh, it's prudent to reserve a portion of our annual debt service. So in this case uh, of an extreme event where re revenues are severely compromised, um, such as an earthquake. I read that in there. Um, we uh, recommend having the next year's highest semi-annual payment in reserve. So we do reserve um, the uh, payable amount, but we also set aside the uh, next year's debt service uh, this reserve acts like insurance, and we hope we never have to use it. So here's a chart that summarizes the four categories and the quantification methodologies that we use to calculate minimum and maximum levels. And this is all clearly spelled out in the cash reserve policy. To summarize our development of the reserve policy, um, the policy was developed completely by public utility staff. Oh, went too far there. I think I need to go back one slide, Don. There we go. Oops. All right. So it was developed by public utility staff. And as explained earlier, we work with staff in all utility divisions to identify the risk factors. Uh, the policy required a lot of education and also approval by our board and city council. We wanted them to feel very comfortable in what we were recommending for approval and, and also um, ask for them to provide input. We included our financial advisors to ensure we were meeting the financial metrics for our bond ratings. So that was very important. And staff also reviewed the best practices and then compared to peer utilities. So in conclusion, um, as you've heard throughout, uh, one size does not fit all. Uh, our reserve policy recognizes the unique risks that RPU faces. 
The reserve policy was developed to mitigate rate increases and provide long-term benefits to our ratepayers. Uh, and the reserve policy is consistent, we feel, with best practices. Um, thank you very much for letting me present today, and, and back to you, Don. Okay, well, thanks so much, Brian. Very, very helpful information. Uh, we wanted to be sure that our audience had a chance to see a couple different approaches uh, to how to address reserves. And uh, let's give you an opportunity to respond to some of the uh, elements of the Riverside example that resonate with you uh, and your agency for things that you think would be worthwhile to do. So click off as many of those as uh, might be relevant for you. Uh, while that's happening, I'm going to bring back the uh, webcams uh, for all of our presenters and take yourself off of mute as we're going to be going on some round-robin questions here. So uh, please join in. And we'll be covering these in just a moment. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of requests just to go back to something a little bit earlier here from uh, what Shane was offering with regard to the model that was used in the Excel spreadsheet for uh, Newport Beach. It looks like there's enough demand here that what I'll do is I'll work with the CSMFO staff and we will put the um, uh, the, the model that uh, Shane was referring to and that, that Dan was describing uh, up on the website so that you can download it from uh, that website as an Excel spreadsheet just to see how it works. Obviously, that uh, has to come with a big caveat that you need to work out a model that's right for your agency. Uh, or you'll be contravening all the good advice that you've been getting from our uh, audience here, uh, from our presenters here today. Uh, so, uh, but I'll I'll do that and I'll send you an email um, that will come to you from GoToWebinar that will describe, you know, how you can access that and everything else so that you'll have a way to go forward with it. So let's let's take a look at how this worked out here and and what people are looking at. So we're seeing lots of interest that people have, especially in evaluating the unique risks that your agency faces. I think that was a theme that really came through in in uh, all the presentations here today is the importance of of being able to do that. Oh, let me share the results so that everybody can see them here. Um, so. A uh, critical thing, uh, consider the best practices in comparison with peers. That's obviously important and, and having a po strong policy. These were a lot of the areas in which our audience earlier in the um, surveys uh, were highlighting as things that they wanted to be doing or weren't in a position to uh, to do effectively. Uh, there is a question here coming up for you, Brian. Uh, people are interested in a copy of the Riverside Public Utilities Reserve Policy. If it's uh, not too extensive, uh, you can send it to me. I can put it in the PDF as a PDF in the agenda packet. If it's much longer, uh, we'll just include it as a, um, a a link. So maybe you can just get back to me about that, Brian. And again, I'll send out information about that um, yeah, in the uh, email that will follow up in the next day uh, to everyone yeah. who registered for the session. Will do, I'll get it to you, Don. Okay, that's super, thanks a lot. Uh, so, uh, we, can, we can see lots of interest here, lots of things that people are interested in pursuing. We're gonna be covering a couple more things in, in this discussion that are important to, to take a look at. Um, and uh, that is, uh, we want to be sure that you're translating this into discussion in your organization. So, the, the key is going to be, you know, what are the major risks that your agency faces? What model or approach are you going to take? Uh, what degree of quantification do you feel you need to undertake uh, to uh, respond to the public and other uh, interests that 
uh, with uh, your uh, rating agencies, et cetera, for assuring them about your risks and that they're covered adequately with your reserves. And then thinking about how you're going to communicate this to the decision makers and to the public. All very, very important things. We encourage you to take a few minutes after this webinar to talk about those or talk about how you're going to address those because that's going to be the payoff for you. Uh, here are the contacts. I'll leave that up as we close out of the webinar so that you can uh, see ways to uh, connect uh, with these folks further. Again, uh, wait on uh, the model and wait on the policy with regard to Riverside until I get the email out to you so you're not inundating our good presenters with information that you'll be able to access within 24 hours pretty uh, easily on your, on your own initiative. Um, so we want to cover another polling question here, which is what you got out of today's session. We worked hard to try to make this as interactive and as uh, valuable to you uh, as possible. So click off as many of the areas in which uh, this webinar uh, fulfilled its objectives as, as they served you or you feel they serve your agency. Um, and while that's happening, one of the questions that come, is coming up here is how have you used your reserve policies in your discussions with your labor units? Uh, there's always some discussion in those, or frequently a discussion in labor negotiations about, oh, you know, the agency is sitting on uh, a lot of money. Uh, why can't, you know, the employees have it? Uh, so talk about how you've used that, what has been the benefit of having an explicit reserve policy and a quantitative analysis of it, and, and what hasn't been, you know, at the end of the day, how does it make a difference on that? Let, let's start that with Dan, uh, and then I'll go to Brian for a quick comment, and then Shane, if you've got some experience elsewhere, that would be great to include as well. But just a quick response on that, we've got some other things that we want to be sure to cover before we, we conclude here. Sure. So, well, um, you know, it's always uh, best to have a policy to cover your um, your agency standpoint. Not only, you know, then it it shifts a little bit of the burden off the finance director, um, but to councils, and you can point to that and say, you know, council direction after extensive analysis uh, landed on these re reserve targets and we fill those buckets first before we allocate uh, anything remaining for uh, operating purposes. Brian, some thoughts? Maybe not, not specific to labor, but um, the policy just really gave us a foundation and justification. Um, so management, like, like Dan mentioned, the uh, our Assistant General Manager of Finance, our, our General Manager, had um, uh, um, the policy um, as support for our reserve levels. Um, so we knew that we had minimum levels um, and they could be justified rather than just 20% of operating expenses. We, we've, we've actually thought about this and it's been approved by a board and city council. And we also established the maximum. So we're attempting in our planning purposes going forward five, 10 years to not exceed a maximum level also. So we'll come back with a plan um, to either reduce reserve levels or increase reserve levels if we're going over and under, but it, it really gives us that justified parameter going forward so we can answer questions. I think, and we could use it as support in, in labor negotiation. 
Jane, what's your read, uh, both in yeah, California I'm, and elsewhere? I would just add kind of, I think this is more general to having a risk-based approach to reserves is that it justifies the purpose of it, right? Because if it's just like, well, you know, our policy is to maintain, you know, whatever, we'll just say 20%, um, you know, it's not, well, you know, what is that for? People don't understand the purpose of it. Um, they're likely to see it as a slush fund, and if they see it as a slush fund, um, then the idea of using it for wages probably sounds like pretty good to some folks. But if it's explicitly like, well, we need this because if there's an earthquake, we have to be able to respond quickly and decisively to maintain the public safety of our citizens, right? That's a little more compelling reason why that um, should not be used for things like salaries and wages. And I think to uh, Brian's point, you know, with the policy, if you've got a policy that says, you know, we can't use this for non-recurring, uh, I should say for recurring expenditures because this is a non-renewable resource, um, that could also be helpful. But I think um, really just tying it explicitly to risk has been something that we've seen kind of counteract that whole kind of like slush fund attitude across multiple types of applications, not just labor. Okay, thanks. I, so I, I would echo that. Uh, you know, I, I think that's really important that it's tied to some quantitative analysis as, as well. So it isn't just a slush fund. So good point, Shane. Okay. So we're seeing from the polling results that people got a lot of value out of this, especially in having a framework and in stimulating their thinking about how to address risks and reserves. So we appreciate the work of our presenters in, in doing such a fine job for us here today. We've got a couple other questions that have come up while I uh, put the, the, um, the closing slides here on um, how to get more information and how to uh, respond to our survey. So we ask everybody to take a few moments after the webinar to complete the post-webinar survey. We value your feedback. Uh, feedback is the breakfast of champions, and we love to continuously improve these webinars. Uh, so uh, please take a moment to do that and share your ideas about future topics because we're uh, eager to make this as responsive to your needs as, as we can. While it's happening, a couple questions that came in. Brian, some people who are in the utilities business or special districts are wondering about um, you know, whether you uh, resolved your guidelines and approach into an actual model, like an Excel spreadsheet or something, or did you uh, take a different approach to do that? And is that something that you can share, or it wouldn't, would it be inappropriate to do so? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, maybe if they can contact me directly, possibly I could uh, share that, but I'd, I'd rather just share the policy at this point. Um, we, like I said, we worked with divisions and discussed um, the risks, um, and specifically our, our power resources group and uh, water operations group um, identified risks. So, um, yeah, we did um, tabulate it. Um, definitely did not go into the detail of Shane. Um, I'm actually uh, considering that kind of a risk review now um, in more detail. I, I've seen Shane present this before. But um, this was definitely a, a great starting point for RPU. Okay. All right, super, thanks. Uh, and we've got a couple other quick questions that I'd like to get to in the remaining minute or two, so a brief responses will be great. Um, what did you do to engage and get buy-in from your city council elected officials in, in launching these efforts? Uh, quickly, if we get a read from Dan and and from Brian on that topic, and then we've got another question before we close. 
Now we we uh, uh, the finance committee participated from beginning to end um, in uh, defining the scope of what we were going to study, and then all all along the way. So we had their buy-in. Um, Shane presented um, some some of the same things to them, and so it was very you know by by including them from the get-go, uh, it was very easy to um, you know can. We, we got consensus very quickly um, by including them. Just before we go to Brian, let me uh, follow up with you because there's always a question about, you know, what's the cost of getting this more quantitative information? Could you give a rough estimate of what it costs you in Newport Beach to engage this more quantitative model? And uh, people are sort of wondering, okay, this all sounds great. What, what would it cost? What's the kind of order of magnitude that you're looking at for an endeavor like that? Well, so we chose to look specifically at the the general fund risks and that component, um, and it was it gosh, it um, six to eight months. Uh, uh, it was around twenty five thousand, so we thought that was a great value for for Newport Beach. With all, I, I'm sure it was a, a money loser for Shane, <laughs> but. Uh, but uh, yeah, we anyways we appreciate his donation. <laughs> All right, great. So, so Brian, a, a quick comment about how you engaged your decision makers and their support for uh, the efforts that you put together to uh, develop your policy and your um, reserve levels. Um, we uh, um, were moving forward with Utility 2.0. Uh, we needed rate plans on both the electric and water side. We had uh, historically climbing reserve levels that were kind of starting to be questioned as far as does, does RP really need this much in reserves uh, from not only the public, but uh, also the decision makers, our, our board and council. So we did meet with uh, board and, and council. Uh, we met with board individually. We had workshops. We uh, met with the, the city finance committee, um, went, went through the proposed policy in detail. But um, with that rate plan going forward, we wanted to justify the amount of reserves that we had on hand and also show then subsequently how our reserves were falling on the water, water side because of the drought and the loss of revenues, um, mandated uh, reduced sales on the water side, and how we um, needed and justified having to keep those reserves at a certain level and to project those reserves at a certain level um, throughout our rate plan. Um, so it, it was um, meeting with specifically with our board and then our, our council uh, finance committee. Okay, super, thanks. Well, we're at the close of our time here, but I, I wanna thank our presenters, Dan Matusiewicz, the finance director and treasurer of the city of Newport Beach, uh, Shane uh, Kavanaugh, who's the senior manager of research at GFOA, and uh, Brian Centerier, uh, who is the fiscal manager for Riverside Public Utilities for their excellent work and all the preparation that you, we did together for this webinar. I wanna thank you, as you can see from the responses from the audience, they've been very appreciative and we are deeply appreciative of your efforts. We do encourage everyone to look to the next uh, webinar. It's, uh, the date is set, I'll be getting the registration information out soon. But on a big thing that's gonna be driving uh, budgets and risks on into the future, and that is uh, what's happening with CalPERS and how to figure that out from your a new actuarial report that'll be hitting your desks very soon. 
So be sure to uh, look for that one. And this is Don Maruska on behalf of the CSMFO Coaching Program, thanking you all for the work that you do in local government finance to keep uh, your uh, agency strong and healthy with good and effective reserve policies and levels. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thank you, everyone.